This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. I'm Ari in Ballou. Well, folks, it's finally here. Primary Day 2023 has come and gone, and it brought with it all the warm and fuzzy memories of elections past, and some nail-biting anxiety for elections to come. The tagline for the show says it's a podcast for a changing Virginia. Nathan came up with that phrase to describe the Democratic trifecta in the state, house, senate, and governorship back in 2020. I used to wonder if that phrase would get old or outdated, but uh, now I'm not so worried. (laughs) Because Virginia is always changing. And every time there are elections, there's always a ton to learn. This year, the primaries are a fascinating mixed bag. On the one hand, a lot of more established candidates held on to their nominations, like Cree Deeds here in Charlottesville. On the other hand, the Democrats saw several progressive victories. Famously conservative senators Joe Morrissey and Chap Peterson were knocked out of the race by Lasharice Aird and newcomer Saddam Salim. In Northern Virginia, longtime incumbent Senator George Barker was defeated by school board member Stella Pekarski. And all of this comes against the backdrop of some huge shifts in the General Assembly. There are new district lines with the new maps from 2020, tons of retirements, and all 140 seats are up for re-election this November. So what should we take away from this week's election? To answer that, we're joined by some longtime friends of the show who can break it all down. Michael Pope and Thomas Bowman. Michael's a statewide journalist who covers the General Assembly, and Thomas is a Democratic strategist who's been involved in Richmond politics for a lot longer than I have. Together, they're the hosts of Pod Virginia, a fellow state politics podcast, which, full disclosure, I'm also a pretty big part of producing. Now to start, Michael breaks down the biggest takeaway from the 2023 primary. The big news is several incumbents lost. So incumbents almost always win. So anytime an incumbent loses, it's actually a really big deal. And we had several of those in this primary election. Senator Joe Morrissey, Senator Amanda Chase, Senator George Barker, Senator Chap Peterson, as well as some uh, members of the General Assembly who lost because they were doubled up because of these new maps. So that includes Senator Lionel Spruill and Delegate Marie March. So, you know, anytime an incumbent loses, it's actually a really big deal. And so this election cycle, we had a lot of really big deals. What are the the, the important races to watch as we're kind of going into the general in November? Obviously, this was just the primary. So sort of what's next? Well, there are races all over Virginia you want to keep an eye on, and they don't necessarily track with the primary races. I mean, it's actually kind of a different field of battle that both the parties are going into, you know, uh, once again, keep in mind, we've got a new map here. So we're looking at house races in Prince William. There's a house race in Henrico, house race in Petersburg, house race in Virginia Beach, um, all of which are kind of open seats where you don't have incumbents. And then on the Senate side, uh, there's Monty Mason uh, faces a Republican challenger out in Newport News. That's a race you want to keep an eye on. Also in Loudoun County, we're going to see a very expensive race uh, for the Senate. And so, yeah, like now that the primaries are over, the the, uh, everyone's focus is going to shift to these totally separate races that are going to be very competitive heading into the fall election cycle, even more competitive because the Republicans did not draw these maps and the Democrats did not draw these maps. A nonpartisan special master appointed by the Virginia Supreme Court drew the maps. And so they're not tilted in favor of either party, which makes them more competitive than they would normally be under normal circumstances. 
Okay, I want to dig into some of those races specifically that were uh, upsets might not be the right word, but but pretty interesting ones as incumbents lost. So that is in the 13th Senate District, Lashree's heir defeated Democrat Joe Morrissey. In the 36th, Philip Karski uh, defeated George Barker. 37th, Saddam Salim unseats uh, Chap Peterson. Those are the Democratic ones. And then the big one on the, the right is Glenn Sturdivant in the 12th District uh, taking out Amanda Chase. What should we be taking away from uh, from these races and then from the election overall? My primary takeaway, if I can make a bad pun, is actually turnout was abysmal for especially in Democratic primaries uh, in places where turnout should not have been that poor. And that definitely has me concerned that the Democratic energy is waning. Now, there's an optimistic analysis that I do not necessarily share that, okay, well, maybe the voters there just don't care. They're tired of the silly season and they're going to just line up and vote Democrat in November. Look, that is certainly one hypothesis. That's also not a hypothesis that tends to ever prove true in history. What is more likely is that we're seeing a reversion back to the mean. And what that means is Democratic voters who have a history of disengagement in off-year elections are returning to being disengaged. And um, by the way, there's going to be a lot fewer incumbents who know their communities, who know those districts and know the activists, have those relationships, and can churn people out uh, than there were just a couple days ago as we're recording this before the primary. Uh, and of course, retirements were happening anyway. So we're, we could see about 45% of the General Assembly turn over, and that's before we even get to the general election. Yeah, actually, at this point, with the retirements and the people involuntarily re retired because they lost the primary, we've got 16 departing senators. That is a lot of senators leaving all at once. And we also have 23 delegates leaving either voluntarily or involuntarily. So, I mean, that's a huge turnover, the likes of which you know, is, I don't want to say unprecedented because Virginia is so old, it's difficult to say anything is unprecedented, but certainly in, you know, anyone's living memory, that's a huge number of people to all leave the General Assembly at the same time. Just to get a sense, that's 16 out of 40 and then like 23 out of 100 uh, delegates, right? So about a, almost half of the state Senate and about a quarter of the state House are going to be turning over? Yes, yes. Uh, that's a huge, huge turnover, which means new committee chairs and possibly even some rookie mistakes that we might see early next year. Yeah, I want to ask about that. Could you guys say anything more about what, what might some of those rookie mistakes be? What might the sort of like overall reduction in experience in the General Assembly mean for Virginia's legislature? Well, Arian, rookie mistake might look different depending on where you sit. So an insider perspective versus an outsider perspective. Outsiders are probably catching up on what happened in the General Assembly by reading the news, which means they're not going to see a lot of the nuanced errors or wins that happen all the time individually at personal levels, at committee levels, et cetera, whether it's saying something that rubs the committee chair, uh, whoever they may be, the wrong way. Often it can happen uh, like Twitter, things said recklessly on social media about somebody. Well, guess what? Now you need their vote for something and you've pissed them off and uh, they're going to be mad at you. Or it could be procedural errors like 
accidentally not filing the bill in time or having basic mistakes in your bill that cause it to go down without a serious hearing or a serious vote uh, on the merits of the substance. That type of stuff happens a lot, especially with new members. And you'll see that new members tend to not be all that productive their first session or even their first couple sessions in office. Um, For example, there's a Democratic legislator up in Northern Virginia who didn't get their first bill passed for like six years um, after they got into office and finally got it passed to uh, much applause. This is one of those situations where it's a lot like high school, Arian, when you're when you're in the General Assembly. Um, personal popularity certainly matters. Uh, personal relationships matter because it's not about convincing the majority of Virginians that your bill or your policy is a good idea. It's about you know the five members in that subcommittee or the 12 members of the committee or the 20 members of the committee or um, a slight majority on the floor. There's a lot of votes. <laughs> And it's not about what's popular. It's about who's popular sometimes. Michael Pope and Thomas Bowman are the hosts of Pod Virginia, a fellow podcast dedicated to Virginia state politics. You can hear from them and occasionally from me over on their show at podvirginia.com. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. You can always find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. And go ahead and subscribe. And if you can, leave us a nice review while you're there. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. You can check out all the podcasts from the Collective. From science to history to music to community affairs, we amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. And we're back with Michael Pope and Thomas Bowman, the hosts of Pod Virginia. We've been talking about the huge turnover that we'll see in the General Assembly this year. Half the Senate and a quarter of the House are set to change for sure, and all of the seats are up for re-election this year. But even as turnover brings hope and excitement, that change also comes with risks. There comes a loss of institutional experience. There's the risk that newer faces might lose in the general election. There are even still some questions about how the lame duck incumbents will deal with Virginia's budget, which is still up in the air. Now, on the whole, I kind of see this as a pretty big win for Virginia's progressives, but uh, Thomas seemed a little more reserved, and he knows a lot more about Richmond than I do. So as we get back to our conversation, I asked him what was going on in his head. Okay, so Thomas, the tone that I'm getting from you is interesting. I see this as... A, a pretty solid uh, election for progressive, you know, progressive Democrats, especially in terms of unseating some of the more conservative members of the uh, of the party. And then you even throw in Amanda Chase getting kicked out. But the tone that I'm getting from you is a little bit more mixed. There's more sort of hesitation on that. I'm wondering if you could speak to that. What are your like concerns and, and, and worries here uh, based on this election? My concern is frankly, that the Republicans have coalesced around many Glenn Youngkins. And on the Republican side, this was the establishment striking back. This was uh, a very establishment-friendly election where the GOP's um, establishment majority was able to um, 
regain a significant amount of territory, if you will, uh, back from uh, some of the more Tea Party and MAGA conservatives who and clowns who got kicked out. The Democrats had a mixed result. Most of the retirements are coming from Democrats in the first place. You have entire committees that have been completely gutted. Senate finance comes to mind uh, as being a pretty important one. And their impacts remain to be seen, right? We won't know how this is going to matter until much later. My concern boils down effectively to candidate quality. Um, In at least two, arguably three races, Democrats nominated uh, who I think most people might consider the weaker candidate for the general election. And this is not necessarily a personal statement about any of these nominees. Uh, you know, the Democratic Party and every cycle voters are going to come back and they're going to come vote like usual for that nominee. But there's entire networks of local community engaged citizens who may not be as enthusiastic coming out of this. You know, Arian, one of the really interesting things about this election cycle is that we did not have any statewide races. So the top of the ticket was the state Senate races. And then you had, of course, the House of Delegate races and then anything that was local on the ballot. So if you had a race for governor or statewide races, you could frame the election as being about something. You know, the 2021 election, we saw Republicans sweep all three statewide races. So the commentary about that election was sort of focused on the Republican sweep. This is an election cycle where you've got really different narratives and they're even conflicting narratives. In this podcast, we've talked about you know the victory of progressives, but we've also talked about the establishment striking back. And if you want to put a scorecard together, there it's a pretty balanced perspective here. I mean, if you are of the mind that this election was about progressives ousting moderates or non-progressives, you could talk about Saddam Salim ousting Chap Peterson, LaCherise Aird defeating Joe Morrissey, Stella Pekarsky defeating George Barker, Luis Lucas defeating Lionel Sproul. But then there's the alternative narrative, the counter narrative of the establishment striking back. And if you wanted to frame the election as the establishment winning, you could talk about Cree Deeds defeating Sally Hudson, Dave Marston defeating Heidi Drauschak, Suhas Subramaniam defeating Ibrahim Samira. And then, of course, fan favorite of the establishment, Glenn Sturdivant defeating Amanda Chase. And by the way, I would also argue that Lashree's heir defeating Joe Morrissey is also the establishment winning. While, yeah, um, Lashree's heir is a well-credentialed progressive she was also the establishment's choice in that district. Okay, so talking about you know the the establishment's choice and the the importance of backing in a lot of these races, Thomas, you've talked on Bot Virginia a little bit about the money that kind of got spent on these races that might be concerning or not as productive. Could you talk a little bit about the money and the backing and the support here and kind of where your head is at? Arian, of course, money itself is a neutral tool used to accomplish means like getting your message out to voters, uh, creating yard signs that build the uh, impression of momentum and strength um, going into an election. And there's a phrase because early money is like yeast, right? But there comes a time at which you can have too much money. What are you going to do with $100,000 as a local candidate or a um, 
even a delegate candidate, if you get $100,000 the weekend before the election, which was a holiday weekend, by the way, in the primary, you can't spend that money fast enough. You haven't created a budget in which to integrate that money. The point is you can't spend that money fast enough. So when you get a big old check right before the election, often there's not really much to do with it from a campaign manager's point of view. So what we saw was Clean Virginia backed multiple candidates in the same race in many times, um, which is a technique that they've picked up, honestly. You know, that's that's not their innovation for sure. But the level at which we saw zeros being added to the end of checks uh, was just, in my own opinion, tasteless, right? (laughs) It doesn't do any good. They're lighting the money on fire often. Think about the charity that could use a $500,000 from either Dominion or Michael Bills at Clean Virginia, right? It's not necessarily about um, who's giving the money. It's the amount of money. It's spending it against themselves in many times. Um, you know, Dominion also backed, for example, both Louise Lucas and Lionel Sproul, right? So again, it's not exclusive to anybody. It's something that happens. But the amounts at which we're seeing it happen are, they're objectionable, right? They, they go beyond good taste. And that includes what Clean Virginia's done, right? Like it's okay to think corporations have too much influence because they do, right? It's it's also okay to think millionaires and billionaires and the ultra wealthy have way too much influence because they do. And participating in those tactics make you part of the problem, if you know what I mean, <laughs> right? Like they don't make things better. I don't know how you come out of this election as a stakeholder in Virginia and say, holy crap, we absolutely need campaign finance reform because it's not sustainable for anybody. And it's just going to make it so the will of local communities, you know, the $50, the $100 contributor, which there's typically lots of that come to local community events. But then all of a sudden, their will doesn't matter anymore. If you can make one call to any of these wealthy benefactors, and get more money than most candidates did, uh, certainly when I was a staffer, over the entire year, right? <laughs> you know, in one phone call. Um, that changes incentives among the elected official and among the staff. And it also, frankly, pollutes the will of the local population. And of course, right, it's a degree to how much people care because they feel they might sympathize, right, with uh, the stated goals of a, any individual organization, right? But that doesn't make it right, and that doesn't absolve them of responsibilities. I want to make one more pivot as we are kind of wrapping up here to um, some of the even more down-ballot races, which are the prosecutor races. Those are local elections that have, I think, not received as much attention, broadly speaking, as the House and Senate ones. But Michael, this seems to be one that you in particular are especially interested in. What has been going on with the prosecutor races, and then what was the result? Sure. Yeah. So um, in the last election cycle four years ago, we saw uh, quite a number of progressive prosecutors for justice who were elected. And so this year we saw pushback to that, where you saw 
candidates who say, well, I don't know, this progressive prosecutor thing seems to be going a little too far. And that thing where you did where you got rid of cash bail, I don't know if I agree with that. And this thing that you do that where you're seeking diversion instead of throwing the book at people, I don't know if that's really good because law and order and all that sort of jazz. So you saw uh, progressive prosecutors for justice, which is, by the way, I didn't create, this is their name. Like they've created letterhead. It almost sounds like they're hanging out at like with superhero, like Superman and Batman are hanging out in the hall of justice with these guys. Right. But, uh, the progressive prosecutors for justice have, uh, candidates on the ballot in Fairfax and in Loudoun and in Arlington. And all three of them had non-progressive challengers who were pushing back on all their progressive reforms. And you saw Republicans actively asking Republicans to go vote in the Democratic primary to oust the progressive prosecutors for justice. You saw police unions try to exercise their influence to oust the progressive prosecutors for justice. You even had the editorial board of the Washington Post endorsing the non-progressive prosecutors in Fairfax and in Loudoun. And despite all of that, they still won. All three of these progressive prosecutors for justice were all successful. And so that really shows you what's going to happen in future elections for prosecutors, because one quirk of Virginia politics is the county prosecutors are on a different election cycle than the city prosecutors. So if you live in a city that has a progressive prosecutor for justice, which I do here in Alexandria, we have one of those, and he wasn't on the ballot this year because he's on the other election cycle. If you live in Roanoke or in Richmond or in Newport News or any of these cities that have progressive prosecutors, they can look to the victory that happened in this primary and say, yeah, voters really like progressive prosecutors, even when they've got all these things aligned against them, even when they've got Republicans going to the ballot to try to unseat them, even when they've got police unions working against them, even when they've got editorial boards working against them, they will still win because voters seem to like these reforms the progressive prosecutors for justice are doing. Are there any kind of last takeaways that we have on on any of these topics, fellas, um, on the, the primaries or looking forward to stuff? What are some last thoughts if we have any? Sure, I've got some. So be mindful of some of the important dates coming up. So the first day of early voting is September 22nd. That's not that far from now. And people are mostly going to be on vacation pretty much up until Labor Day. Uh, or at least a large portion of the population will be taking their turns. This is usually the quiet period. Uh, we expect the Senate Finance Committee to go back in uh, for negotiate. Well, I should say the General Assembly's Money Committees to go back in for their negotiations over uh, the alleged budget that's supposed to come out this year. Um, we'll see if it happens. Uh, we just talked to Dave Ramadan. You can find it on the Pod Virginia site, and Ramadan is very optimistic that. The people who just lost that are in these money committees are consummate professionals and are, and are planning to leave Virginia in uh, the best position that they can before they leave office. And I think that would be great if that happened. I'm just looking at it from a human perspective, and I don't necessarily see the incentive there anymore. If Republicans think that their strength is ascendant, then why would they necessarily want to negotiate right now? What you know, Just wait till after the election if they can. We can go through till December if we wanted. Um, it's a caboose budget, so we technically do have a budget. The governor's insisting on a billion dollars worth of tax cuts that we can't afford necessarily. And Virginians are like, hey, what about our schools? What about our roads that need to get fixed um, or, or have been underfunded for the last 15 years? Those things need attention. There's a lot to fight about. 
Um, Democrats are going in with a weaker hand than Republicans right now, and I think a weaker hand than they expected to be going in to the budget negotiations with uh, before the primary. Uh, George Barker comes to mind. His loss probably single-handedly undermines uh, any hypothetical strength Democrats would have had in those negotiations. And I still think it's possible both Republicans and Democrats decide they want to wait and they don't actually want to move on the budget, right? So the Senate Republicans are saying that they're ready to negotiate. Well, that's because they like what they see right now. And so Democrats might say, oh, hold on, you know, I've got a pre-planned family vacation. I'm not around. And oh, and so is the next person. And next thing you know, it's November. Yeah, I'm two things to think about. One is in the immediate and one is for the future. For the immediate term, what Thomas was just talking about is this discussion about the budget amendments. So we've got a two-year budget, and so the debate is the amendments to the budget. So you know, you could make the argument it's no real big deal if they don't pass a budget because we've got an existing budget. Here's the problem with that. All the laws that the General Assembly passed earlier this year are funded by amendments to the budget. So if you passed a law this year that created a study committee for something, then July 1 rolls around, there's no money for your study committee, your study committee is not going to meet, which means you're going to get a later start to create a report that needs to be out in December to influence the things that you wanted to influence, which is why you had a study committee in the first place. So that late start means your study committee is not going to be as effective as it could be. Or if you had a law to make something illegal, there's no money to enforce that new thing that you made illegal because we haven't amended the budget. So you know, there is a consequence to not passing the caboose budget. That's the immediate effect you want to look at. Longer term for, you know, looking ahead to November, we really could see something that we've never seen. And the reason for that is because we have an unprecedented map here. This map was not created by Democrats. They were gerrymandering all the districts and it was not created by Republicans who were gerrymandering all the districts. It was a independent, nonpartisan special master appointed by the Virginia Supreme Court, which means that we're going to see strange things that we might not expect. I mentioned earlier, all these incumbents that were ousted, that's likely because of these new maps. Joe Morrissey, Amanda Chase, George Barker, Chad Peterson, uh, Lionel Spruill, Marie March, they all lost in large measure because of these new maps. And so looking ahead to November, we're probably also going to see other incumbents and other results that we might not expect because of the unprecedented nonpartisan nature of these new maps. Arian, if you look at who is left standing from the class of 2017 that came in uh, with the start of the blue wave, many of them are gone, right? So Foy now is in the Senate after having lost a attempt to run statewide. Jay Jones is gone. Sally Hudson, of course, is now uh, at least temporarily out of politics. Hala Ayala has now lost two big elections. She's out of politics for the time being. Democrats don't really have a clear sense of the direction or the momentum uh, within the party. For multiple terms now, I would say that the Democratic establishment has been too conservative and too afraid to pursue aggressive policy action. They had two years with a trifecta and legalized gambling. You know, <laughs> like that was the, that was the big thing. They they couldn't get well, marijuana. I would push right. back on that. I would push get, back on that a little uh, bit. Thomas. Some of the easy things. Sure, yes, they absolutely. Uh, hold on, I'm pushing back on it myself. Yes, they absolutely did accomplish tasks 
However, those policy goals were low-hanging fruit. They were the easiest things that they could accomplish. They didn't really take on a bold agenda, that, at least certainly not an agenda that younger Democrats under 40 would consider bold. That said, a lot of the energy behind those reforms are now gone, but so are a lot of the people who are blocking those reforms. Really big takeaway, really big thing to be prepared for is that the Senate is no longer going to be the place where activist bills go and cool off for a while, uh, or perhaps even die, even in a Democratic trifecta, right? How many progressive uh, activist-oriented pieces of policy legislation were able to pass the House and then died in the Senate for one reason or another? That's not necessarily going to happen anymore, and that actually ups the stakes for Republicans to make a big effort to try to keep the House um, and a big effort to try to take the Senate, because if the Republicans lose the House, there are a lot more progressives and a lot more Democrats who will be coming into the General Assembly lack the institutional knowledge uh, to know what levers they're going to need to throw to try to get something passed that's bold and aggressive and you know what speed bumps they need to be prepared for and her- institutional hurdles to overcome. So that could set back by a couple of years also um, any other hypothetical uh, policy agendas that, um, you know, even assuming you could get it through Yunkin in the first place, we'll see. Um, But it's going to be a good time to be a lobbyist. That's for sure. (laughs) Michael Pope and Thomas Bowman are the hosts of Pod Virginia. You can hear from them and often from me over at podvirginia.com. If you're looking for a weekly recap of the latest news and politics out of Richmond, they are a great complement to the work we do here. And speaking of which, my name is Arian Ballou, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away.